at that. Welcome, Jason. We're looking forward to what you have to share. Thanks. So my role as communications director is um, part of my weekly rhythm, routine, responsibilities is sending out prayer updates. So I've got clipboards, um, and I'm going to circulate these throughout while I'm sharing. Um, and then Angie's role, as you can see up on the screen, um, has more to do with the K-12 through school that we have on campus. Um, a, a number of the families that come to Durham to be trained as church planters overseas are coming from outside of Canada. And to put their kids in the public school is not a great overlap or fit, and so we run a K-12 through for staff and student kids, and Angie teaches high school math there and is the administrator for that program as well. Um, so that's a bit of our role there, um, as, yeah, just adding a little bit to what Deb was saying. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys again this morning, as uh, this is a church I grew up in, um, so many of you are familiar with me and me with you. Um, so welcome to 2023. Um, yeah, another year, and as, I don't know if you guys are into uh, New Year's resolutions, uh, if anyone has set those goals for 2023 already, um, often it's a time that we can reflect and we can think back on our previous year and how 2022 was. Um, I know for some of us, there was really highlights and, and wonderful bits to, as we think back on our last year. Um, but for some of us, there's elements of 2022 that we hope that we don't have to repeat. Um, and that came to mind this morning, as, or this last few weeks, as I was thinking, what would the Lord have me share? Um, a story came to mind, a story that we find in Matthew 18 that was read earlier for us, a parable of an unforgiving servant. I know the Lord brought this story to mind because uh, there's lessons in here that we all need, uh, myself included. And so this morning, there's a fair bit of personal testimony woven into these lessons that I've been learning um, that I trust you guys will benefit from as well. So let's take a moment just to, again, commit uh, this next chunk of, of our morning together in prayer, and then we can begin to look at Matthew chapter 18. Father, we thank you that you are a good, good God, that you love us, that you care for us, that you're here this morning. And Lord, as I seek to honor you with relaying those things that I have been learning, I just pray that you would even now be guarding over what I say, that you would protect and help me not to say what you don't want said. Lord, even as we're here this morning and, and looking at your word. Father, we just pray that we would hear from you and not just from some guy on the platform. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 18, this is a parable that Jesus explained how to deal with. It's a parable that comes after a number of verses. Um, and these verses before the parable are how sinning, a sinning brother in the Lord, a sinning sister, a fellow Christian should be dealt with. Um, multiple steps. And so step one, go and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And if they listen, fantastic. But if not, then take one or two others from the church, presumably, and go and, and address the sin in their life. And if they listen, fantastic. But if not, 
then bring the conversation to the church, to the wider Christian community. And if they listen to the wider Christian community, fantastic. But if not, then treat them like, and the text says, a heathen or a tax collector. Peter, the Apostle Peter, he's, he's listening to Jesus teach about how to deal with a sinning brother in the church or sister. And he, he asked this question, Lord, how often shall, we, shall a, a brother sin against me and I still forgive him? Up to seven times? Has, has anyone here ever been hurt by someone in the church? Has anyone found it difficult Difficult to forgive a brother or a sister in the Lord. I know when I'm in those seasons where I'm struggling the most with this, it's because someone from within the church has been the one that has hurt me. And I have found it extremely hard to let go of that hurt and and to move on. Uh, There's this definition of forgiveness that Erwin Lutzer has in his book, and the title of the book is, When You've Been Wronged, Moving from Bitterness to forgiveness. And he says, forgiveness is releasing the bitterness in spite of the pain. Releasing the bitterness in spite of the pain. The opposite of forgiveness is to go through life with this spirit of bitterness that can fester inside and it can start oozing out like a pussing sore. How many of us have family members, I'm, I'm one of them, like to pick at a sore. You get a scab and you just can't Leave the scab alone. You've got to pick at it. It can fester. Another quotation that I, I looked up this weekend and couldn't find just one person attributed to this. Many people have been quoted as saying bitterness or resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Today, as, as we, as you, as I head into 2023, I've got a question for you. How's your heart? How are you doing on the inside? Would the words joy and peace be good words to characterize how you're doing on the inside? Or would the words frustrated, anxious, discouraged, would those words better describe how you're doing on the inside? Just, just seeing somebody can, can almost be that PTSD sometimes. Um, you got this tight chest of anxiety when that one person that you, they've hurt you. They walk into the room or, or you just see them at the grocery store. Something triggers within you. And you, like Peter, might be asking, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? No. The Jewish leaders, they were saying, you ought to forgive three times. And Peter, I think he was trying to be generous you know, doubling it and then adding one for good measure. Jesus, do we have to forgive seven times? Is that, that's a good big number. What do you think Jesus responded? Yes, Peter, you're being generous. No. Jesus says, not seven times, 70 times seven. It's an expression for an uncountable number. 70 times seven. It's in this context of Peter and Jesus talking about one brother needing to forgive someone who has hurt them. It's into this context of this conversation that Jesus tells the story of the unforgiving servant. In this parable, we've got two main characters. We've got this king, and in this story, the king is a picture of God. 
And just like the king took great responsibility to settle accounts, he took this responsibility seriously. God also takes our sin seriously. And he'll not let someone who is letting this bitterness fester inside of them, he's not going to let it go uncorrected. Both the king in this story and God are also full of mercy and full of compassion. But then there's this second character, the unforgiving servant. And in this picture, this parable, this story, this is a picture of humanity. It's a picture of you and a picture of I. I don't know if everybody here can relate to this unforgiving servant, but I know that I can relate to this guy. And as I've been mulling over and pondering and meditating on this passage for the last number of weeks, three different points came to mind. Three different dominoes, each one that lead to the next and have an impact on the next. How we see ourselves has a huge impact on how we see others. And how we see others within the church specifically has a huge impact on how we treat them, especially when they hurt us. And how we treat others within the household of faith, within the church, has a huge impact on our testimony before a world whose greatest need is Jesus Christ. In this parable, the the first servant's debt, like all of our sin debt, was so massive, there was no possible way inside of time itself for him to pay that off. The servant could not deal with his own debt. When confronted confronted with this huge debt that he owed, he responded in two ways. First, he did humble himself. We all, as sinners, must admit our wrong and humble ourselves before God in order to receive his forgiveness. But this servant's not perfect. And he still thought that he could do something about his debt. He thought he could pay it off, but he couldn't. And we can't deal with our sin debt either. We need to quit looking within ourselves and for the answers to our, our biggest problems. We need to look to God. If, if I was this servant and I was confronted with my sin debt... I probably wouldn't have been as quick to own it if the servant did that. I can hear myself saying, well, the reason that I owe you so much is because so-and-so, they owe me. They owe me so much as well. It's not my fault that I owe you an unforgivable or unrepayable debt. Maybe it's not debt that we're confronted with. Maybe when we're confronted with not having compassion on others, our knee-jerk reaction would be, the reason I'm not as nice as I ought to be is because so-and-so has not been nice to me. And I'm hurting, and hurting people hurt. It's, it's not my fault that I'm treating them like that. Any of you guys got siblings that are quick to say, yes, but? Yeah, but! They started it! When confronted with our sin... We need to own it, and we need to repent, and repent's just a technical word for doing the opposite, going 180 degrees from what we had been doing. In verse 27 of this passage, we then see how the king responded after the servant 
acknowledged his debt, humbled himself, the king said, or what he did was he had compassion in verse 27. And he released the servant and he forgave him that big debt, that loan. And the same can be true for us. God desires to have compassion on us as sinners. And he does so without any help at all, whatsoever, from us. He's dealt with that sin debt on the cross. Uh, As a small group at our church, we've been looking through the book of Mark. And in Mark chapter 2, there's this parable of the paralegic. Paraplegic? That Jesus heals. Um, It also comes up in in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 6. And we see that Jesus does a physical miracle to give evidence that he can do a non-physical miracle. Namely, forgiving sins. So Matthew 9 and verse 6 reads, But that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, something that they can't see. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Christ confirmed his power to forgive sins, something that is invisible, by healing the, the paralytic's physical ailment, something that is visible. So Christ has the authority to forgive sins. But secondly, Christ also revealed there in the upper room how he was going to forgive sins. And so in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, it reads, Then he, that's Jesus, took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them. And he said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The blood of Jesus Christ. It was shed. And that shedding of His blood made it possible for the complete and the absolute remission, forgiveness of our sins. We also see in Luke 24 another couple of verses, 46 and 47, where Jesus says, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations. Again, in the Greek, that word ethnos, a word that I'm fond of, um, beginning at Jerusalem. Remission of, of sins should be preached in His name to all the nations, all of the ethnic groups of the world. So, here's a question for you. Have you let God deal with your sin debt? Have you asked Him to forgive you that debt that you owed that you couldn't pay? We see in Romans 6 and 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have the servant And he was forgiven a debt so large that he could never pay it back. What does he do? Verse 28. He went out and he tried to collect money from somebody else. Why would he do that? Was was he determined to repay that loan that he had previously owed? Well, the text doesn't say. But what Scripture, what the Word of God does say, is that this first servant did not show mercy 
to the second servant. Generally, you, you, you can't give what you have not received. Our ability to forgive others flows out of our having been forgiven by God. Our ability to be merciful, to be compassionate is possible because God first was showing mercy and compassion to us. Yes, that first servant had accepted the pardon. But I wonder if his lack of compassion to others was evidence that he really hadn't absorbed the the weight of what had happened. He hadn't really appreciated the fact that his debt had been cleared. Those of you that are taking notes and have that handout, those are the three A's on there. Accepted, absorbed, appreciated. Do we spend more time dwelling on and marveling in with a good sense of unbelief that God has demonstrated His love towards us, not because we were lovely, but while we were yet sinners? Romans 5? Or are some of you like me, and if we're honest, we spend more time dwelling on in utter disbelief that a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in the Lord would wrong us. They would hurt us while we were undeserving of such a wrong. And we just dwell on that. Where do you spend your time thinking? Or what do you spend your time thinking on? Generally, people are plagued with an overinflated sense of self, and I'm a prime candidate of this. These last couple of months, I've had the wonderful opportunity to examine my own heart, and I've had this opportunity to to wrestle with God and to let Him show me a thing or two about myself. And as I've gotten a glimpse of what God knows to be true of me, I've realized part of my problem is I've got a distorted view of myself, and it's led me to have a distorted view of others. I am very quick to remember how others have hurt me. And I'm also very quick to excuse myself when others have been hurt by me. I had to come to realize that I find it hard to forgive and to be compassionate because of this thing called self-righteousness. It's not a term that I could quickly rhyme off a definition for. You know, I could tell you how mercy and grace are distinct from one another and grace is, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. But but what is self-righteousness? Well, Paul Tripp, in his uh, daily devotional, New Morning Mercies, he, he defines it this way, being more concerned for and motivated by the knowledge of the sin of others than your own. Self righteousness, being more concerned about other people's sin than your own sin. Whose sin irritates you more? Your own? Your siblings? Your parents? Whose sin irritates you more? The other person or your own sin? Who do you wish would change? Who, who are you desperate to see change in? Somebody else or yourself? It's this self-righteousness, which I think is, is wrapped up well in these verses from Matthew chapter 7. Um, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. 
Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard that you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why do you worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, here, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll be able to... And you'll be able to see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. As I've been nursing my own wounds, I've behaved as if I don't have any problems of my own. As if I'm the innocent one in this situation. But does God see me as innocent? How does God see me? As as innocent or as one who has been forgiven? And how does God see that brother or that sister that has hurt you or that has hurt me? Does God see them as innocent? As, or does He see them as somebody that is also forgiven? And in Christ. And accepted by the, the Beloved. We can go on and on through the first three chapters of Ephesians. All that God says is true of somebody that is in Christ. Oh, that we would see ourselves clearly. And that we would see others within the church as God sees them. But in order for this to be the case, I think we we really need to see God clearly in order to see ourselves and others clearly. God is the King. He is the one that has paid a price beyond measure to redeem us to Himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Uh, Taking a few verses out of 19 and 20 and mashing them together. Do you not know that you are not your own? You were bought with a price. How many of us actually are excited about the idea of not being in charge of our own lives? That we celebrate that. That we revel in the fact that we're no longer in charge. Not me. If I'm honest, every time I look around I find myself behaving as if I'm the one in charge of me. I find myself wanting to make something of myself, something even of my name. But then I go, I'm not actually that bad. You know, I'm actually driven. I'm, I'm driven to please God. If so, I have to admit that I'm driven using resources from within, my own flesh. I'm not living. It, my life that I'm living, it's not Christ living His life out through me. It's not the character of Christ that others are experiencing and bumping into and seeing radiating out of me. As I'm going about ministry, people are not feeling the warmth that radiates off of me. That should be the character of Christ coming through this cracked pot that I am. It's not Christ at work in me. He's not living out His life through me as He ought to be. I'm walking, I'm not walking in the Spirit as much as I ought to be. It's me at work. It's me living after the flesh. The thought of giving up control of my life, it's, it's scary. And when I mull over this stuff, what's scary about it? It's, well, do I actually trust God with my life? What if He asked me to do something that I didn't think He should be asking me to do? For most, this might be God asking them to be a missionary on the other side of the globe. 
in some deepest, darkest wherever. For me, the fear, it, that's not the fear. The fear is that he's going to ask me to be still and do nothing. Um, maybe there's somebody here that can relate. I, I see injustice everywhere and I can make much of little and that injustice that I'm perceiving around me, I just can't help but get in there and fix it. But fix it as I see best. Because I know what's best and I suspect you think that you know what's best for your life as well. And you know what God should not be asking you to do. And I know what God should not be asking me to do. Can we admit that we don't know best? Can we admit that we don't see so good? Can we admit that we suffer from spiritual blindness and that our spiritual blindness leads to us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. God says in Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. When you and I come to terms with the fact that that we're actually blind. That we, we should be crying out to God. So here's some other homework this week. You can get out your calendars now if they're on your phone. Block out some time to have a, a chat with God. Ask Him to bring to your mind this week an area, maybe two, where you need your perspective clarified if not your mind changed about something. Spiritual blindness and self-righteousness, they have an impact on how we see ourselves, how we see ourselves has an impact on how we see others, and how we see others has an impact on how we treat others. So going back to the parable in Matthew 18, verses 31 and 30 through 33, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you. This command to forgive does not come without an example. Uh, Luke 6, 36, Therefore be merciful just as your Father has had mercy on you or been merciful. Ephesians 4, verses 32, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. If we fail to see God as the one who's in charge, it's so easy to slip into thinking, well, then I'm the one that's in charge, and I'm the one that knows best. And if we think that we know best, then we'll have this distorted view of ourselves, and we'll not see others as God sees them, namely, in need of mercy and compassion. And if we don't think others need compassion, then we won't treat them with compassion especially when they intentionally or unintentionally 
hurt us. As I've thought about the consequences of not forgiving and not being compassionate, I've seen three different consequences that, and areas of consequence. So there's a whole bunch of C's in here. It's a nice one. You can find the alliteration. So consequences starts with a C. We end up showing contempt for somebody rather than showing compassion. Um, but we also will receive the correction of God rather than his congratulations. And I'll unpack that in a moment. But we also end up being confusing rather than convincing to those who are outside the household of faith. So I think on your notes, I've got all of these flipped into the positive. Um, but those are a whole bunch of C's. So the first set of C's, showing contempt rather than compassion. And I think this text is speaking of those within the household of faith. Um, a brother or sister that hurts you. Do you know what happens when you fail to forgive? We can become bitter on the inside. And rather than treating a fellow believer with compassion, we may go so far as to treating them with contempt. I don't know if I'm going to read a few statements. Can you relate to this? Can't stand being around them. Every little thing that they do irritates and annoys you to no end. We continuously find fault with everything that they do. Our thoughts are filled with constant replays of everything that they've ever done, almost intentionally, so that we won't forget one detail. We must be able to call them to account for every wrong that they've ever committed. We become filled with frustration and anxiety over whether or not they are going to get what they deserve. You know, it's torture. We subject ourselves to torture, torture that will not end till we are prepared to forgive whoever it is that has wronged us. And in the midst of that hurting, we end up hurting others, treating others with contempt. But the second pair of C's, correction and congratulations. Not only is there the consequence of treating a brother or sister with contempt, but so God desires to teach us, God desires that each of us we be conformed to the image of His Son. And He's not willing to let any of us harbor a spirit of unforgiveness and bitterness. He desires all of us to get along and that we allow the circumstances, and, and He will allow circumstances into our lives that refine us and make us lean more on Him as we become more like Him. God desires to say at the at that final judgment of believers, well done, good and faithful servant, Matthew 25. God desires to congratulate us, and yet we can fall under the correction of God. A third consequence of failing to forgive is that we become ineffective as ambassadors of Christ. Where our lives should be convincing the unbelieving world that there is a God and that He loves them, we end up confusing those that are outside of the household of faith, outside of the church. Angie and I, we've chosen to invest our lives in bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We see in God's Word, we quoted this verse earlier from Luke 24, that it was necessary that the Christ to suffer to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name amongst all of the nations, all of the ethnos, beginning in Jerusalem. 
this church, uh, along with us, believe at the end of age there will be some from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation, every ethnos, singing a new song around the throne. Revelation 5.9 And we believe that God is using His church, you and I, to accomplish this. He has given us a great commission. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in, uh, teaching them all, uh, teaching them to observe all, observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's this great commission, but there's also the great commandment from John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you may also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Our love for each other is a testimony of whose we are. In Matthew chapter 5, we see there's a connection between our good works and God getting glory. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our effectiveness as a church, as believers, is hindered. By a lack of love, a lack of compassion, of mercy, of grace between believers. You got to remember this morning, I'm not wanting to lay a heavy guilt trip on anybody. I'm speaking to myself as much as to anybody. These are lessons that I'm learning. And I hope they're helpful to you as well. And so I ask, how often shall my brother, my sister sin against me? And I forgive them. Up to seven times? Nope. Up to 70 times seven. Take a step back. Yes, it's true. We've all been hurt. Often it, it stings most when it's from a close person within the church. We've got to remember we're not innocent either. We're actually far from innocent. But what we are is forgiven. And if we let our forgiveness from God affect how we forgive others, particularly within the church, we can end up being conduits of compassion rather than conduits of contempt. We can look forward to that future day when He congratulates us and says the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And for those productivity junkies out there, will actually be more convincing rather than confusing as we spread the good news to the ends of the earth. Father, we do thank you that you are faithful to us. That when we need to be corrected, you lovingly correct us. Father, that you have modeled what it looks like to be forgiving. 
and that you enable us to forgive those who have hurt us. Not just seven times, but a countless number of times. Father, we thank you for this new year and this opportunity to continue to be conformed into the image of your Son um, and to, to practice uh, what you have preached through your word. Father, we are grateful for all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.